Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. The more that the publisher knows about the audience, the more that audience is worth. Over the course of season one of the SIDCast, I've had a chance to talk to a few of my former students at Dartmouth who've been doing really fascinating things since graduating. My guest on this episode of the SIDCast was doing fascinating things before going back to school. He was a photojournalist for the Baltimore Sun and the Washington Post for 12 years. He was nominated for multiple Pulitzer Prizes with his photography displayed at various photo exhibits, one of the top young photographers working in the field. But at dinner, after we recorded the podcast that you're about to hear, he also told me that when he was in the field, he saw a famous photographer literally sleeping in an alleyway somewhere in the Middle East where Michael Lutsky was also on location. And presumably he was sleeping in an alleyway because he didn't have the money for a hotel or maybe even worse. And Michael knew then he really had to make a change. Fast forward 15 years, and Michael Lutsky is the vice president for business development at NPR, the primary point person at NPR to think strategically about their incredible roster of shows and talent, many of whom influenced me as I began podcasting almost a year ago. You know, Terry Gross at Fresh Air, of course, everybody's favorite, Guy Raz, How I Built This, which I have to say is my MBA student's favorite podcast, Alex Spiegel, Hannah Rosen, and Lulu Miller at Invisibilia, and many, many others. And actually, amazing shows like Wait, wait, don't tell me and planet money and the list goes on and on. But here's the problem. NPR is a nonprofit operating with the same business model for decades, dominated by amazing journalists with award-winning shows, but competing in 2020 with, well, guess who? Google, Apple, Amazon, the BBC, the New York Times. It's a giant challenge to get the big NPR ship to start to do a few things just a little bit differently without losing or alienating the talent that made them so successful in the first place. Well, it turns out that's Michael Lutsky's job and it's one of the most challenging in the media business today. So, you know, listening to him talking about competing with Google and New York Times, it's really fascinating. And since everyone listening is a fan of podcasts, how the world of podcasts is changing and what NPR is doing about those changes is fun to engage in. And Michael is really the right person to share that. Today's episode is about the media business and the transformations taking hold today and what might be on tap for tomorrow. But it's also about personal transformation that Michael Lutsky has experienced in his own life and his own career and his ability to articulate both of these things that made this conversation so engaging for me. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. with Michael Lutsky. Hi, Mike. Hello, Sid. How are you? Good. It's great to talk to you, and you gave us a little tour of NPR, and it's kind of like the greatest hits are here from all things considered <laughs> to the tiny desk concerts, and I actually saw where that was, and you were nice enough to take me and my wife, uh, Gloria, who's with us today on the tour. It's like a nirvana for people who like uh, radio. I sense that every time somebody comes to visit. They have to get the tour. They have the same excitement and enthusiasm that I did when I first walked in here and that I still do just about every 
every day. I mean, that's an amazing statement about a brand, isn't it? It's amazing is right. I mean, it's interesting because long ago, there was a, this theory from the one of the founders of Saatchi about love marks and oh, NPR is Kevin Roberts. Kevin Roberts. And he came to speak when I was one of your students and not forgotten that at all. And I've been fortunate enough to have worked for NPR, which I think is a strong love mark. I worked for the Washington Post before my time at Tuck, which I think in its own little way is kind of a strong brand, a love mark for some. And we wrestle with that here at NPR. Are we a news brand or are we a lifestyle brand? Mm. Because this love and affinity for all of the non-news programming and products that we have is such a loyal following as the is traditional news. Is it a conflict for the news people that they want to be hardcore <laughs> and this kind of fluffy cultural lifestyle thing is not what we're all about? I think it is an, a bit of an identity crisis. I don't think people take it too seriously. It's a good question, though, because I think our stations think of us far more as a news brand. I mean, with the local news, um, the national news that NPR provides is sort of the lifeblood of the public radio system. So I think in that space, there's a little more tension about it. But you mentioned it, Tiny Desk, people love it. People love the podcasts, TED Radio Hour and Hidden Brain and Planet Money. And they're not quite news in the way that we traditionally define it. You know, now we're getting ahead because I wanted to talk about you know, some of the earlier days, but you brought yeah. up the New York Times has been very effective. I mean, yeah. I've not seen the money, the details, but very effective. It seems at monetizing an incredible number of assets that they've had forever. A lot of that has nothing to do with news. For example, their crossword, the New York Times crossword is legendary. Right. They're selling it separately. I happen to be a customer. Yeah. Um, I've become addicted to the crossword puzzles. And that's one of, I don't know how many, probably a hundred different products they've created. Yeah, I think if you look at them as a case study, there's that struggle, that internal question about, you know, we're news. Are we, you know, we're a news brand has meant that a lot of folks at other news entities didn't sort of take a look at what the audiences wanted and what undervalued assets they had that they could leverage. And the New York Times has food. Their cooking products are very, very strong. How do they make money off of that? Do you know, they create sort of separate newsletters when you have uh, general news news content, your CPMs or the price that you charge advertisers are not that high because it's a hard audience to pin down for an advertiser. But if you've got an, an audience of hundreds of thousands of people subscribing to a cooking newsletter or a business newsletter or a crossword product, that is a sellable audience. That's a definable segment and target. So it's worth more. When I was doing some consulting, I worked for a B2B newsletter company and they could get CPMs that were a hundred times higher than what a general news so the cost per thousand, what they charge advertisers per thousand page views or per thousand impressions they, on digital they, they product. A higher number. Much higher because, because as a B2B newsletter, people signed up for it. So they had their emails. They knew what their jobs were. They knew that they had buying power, whether they were executives or not. So the more that the publisher knows about the audience, the more that audience is worth. And a brand will pay more because they can target the audience they that they want to get. Yeah, this is come up before, which is some sort of commercial views about news publishing will be critical of some news folks for monetizing the audiences that they gather. And NPR doesn't run that way. So, for example, the more that publisher can tell a brand about the demographics of its audiences, the more the brands will pay. Mm -hmm. But if they can't tell them, then the CPMs or the amount the brands will be pay is very, very low. So the New York Times has all of these extensions. And because they know they've got 200,000 people really interested in cooking and their average household income is this and their average age is that, 
then the brands know what they're getting and they can target those ad buys against their goals. So what is a podcast? So a podcast is effectively a file that you can access anytime. The SIDCast is is a fantastically rich file that enriches people's lives, but not all podcasts are. SIDCasts or SID files. And so what's really interesting about this new world of podcast is that you've got now, you know, typically on the radio, you have to call in and news and programmed, we call unscripted. Podcasts have opened up some genres now that are scripted, which is the difference maybe between a scripted film and a documentary film. The scripted audio didn't really exist before podcasts. The radio wasn't a great forum for that. In the 50s and 60s, it was when you had, you know, radio shows that were scripted and everyone sat around the radio and listened. Exactly. Audiences for those sort of declined with the advent of television Mm -hmm. and probably more music listening. But that's come back in podcast. And so a lot of those podcasts are relatively inexpensive ways to experiment with storytelling. And as a consequence, television producers and television creatives listen to podcasts and get inspiration for adaptations. It's much easier and cheaper for them to sort of get the feel for something that was produced in a podcast before they spend the money to adapt it to television. But there's an entire ecosystem that's evolved adapting spoken word Mm -hmm. into television and film. And NPR participates in that too. We don't do scripted content like Dirty John or Homecoming or others, but we have our own content that we've optioned for film and television, and we've optioned a franchise of ours for adaptation. So Wait, Don't Tell Me has been optioned to be adapted as a television show. So don't let anyone tell you that NPR isn't in the game with all of the big names that you mentioned that were in NPR. Yes. You're baiting me. (laughs) We're a nonprofit, but we had a CEO who recently moved on who used to say there is no mission without margin. Mm. And we have grown our revenue significantly in the last few years, largely through the success of podcasting, but also through a good bit of coordinating this giant public radio system into a little bit of a better marketing engine for radio listening. about how all these things are connected. And that's kind of in part what you do for a living and look for ways to monetize some of those connections. And so back to podcasts. So when people are listening, let's say a TV or movie Mm -hmm. producer is listening to a podcast, would you say that's analogous to someone like that reading a book? Yeah. It's no different. It's just a different form of communication, but spoken versus written word. But it's the same same idea. They're getting inspiration and some of them get it in a book and now they're able to get it through podcasts. And we know this. I mean, we've gone out to LA. We have a partner out there that represents us. We've met with 16 different sort of studios and production houses and um, and firms out there. And we heard a lot of the same thing, which is there's a whole lot of really talented people out there looking for their next big project. And a lot of them are getting inspired or getting inspiration from podcasts. Uh, NPR has an advantage because we do a lot more than podcasts. We do about eight hours of fresh, topical, relevant audio a day. And not all of it is podcasts. So when we're out there and we ask them, so what are people interested in? And an executive say, I just got out of a meeting with one of my top writers who's really interested in doing a whistleblower story. It's like, oh, we just did a four-part series on whistleblowers. And that's not something that others can say very frequently. Do you put the New York Times as a 
competitive? Depends who you ask. Mm-hmm. The answer is largely yes. I run what was effectively the strategy function here. We're a small shop, but we just did a three-year growth strategy. And one of the things we were realizing is that we can't segment competitors anymore in the way that we used to. Mm-hmm. We used to have our bucket of news competitors. It used to be the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN. We used to have our sort of distribution competitors, Spotify and Pandora, Google, but now they are all blended together. Hmm. Our biggest news competitor now is Google. Really? Yeah. Google's announcements, the products that they're piloting, the way that they want to atomize audio and customize and distribute it based on what they know about you. Spotify with an incredibly large installed base of listeners who are like Facebook. Sometimes the Hmm. first thing people do in the morning is they'll go to Spotify. Hmm. And so Spotify has introduced some playlists and products that draw people into a listening experience first thing in the morning that includes news. And that's a huge threat for us in our ecosystem. And so the New York Times is a competitor, but I wouldn't say that they take up all of our headspace in the way they did before. They're certainly a competitor in audio with a news podcast in audio. That's sort of our bread and butter. So they are a competitor, but hardly the only sort of threat. Spotify's, do they or have they partnered with NPR? I guess it depends how you define partnership. We have really good relationships with all of them. What I'm thinking, Michael, is is content. You produce content. We do produce content. content and very high quality content. 100%. Lots of amazing podcasts. Why should they go and do this from scratch and learn how to do it mm-hmm. and then try to create? Now, I know that, of course, they do it. Yes, uh, they do. And Netflix they, does they pay it. for and original content. Making, and Amazon's making original programming. Right. So it seems like there's something pretty magical about original programming. I don't know yeah. whether it actually makes a lot of money for all of them, but right. they sure want to be in it. Right. It's the buzz. Let me flip the question because this is something we are thinking about all the time. Why should NPR seed the distribution of its content to a third party? And the answer is they have a gigantic distribution network that you can't get to. We have 40 million listeners on the radio every week which, you know, is comparable to the number of news listeners on any other platform. In fact, we have a product called NPR One, which is a personalized audio news streaming service that has been around for about four plus years. If I was to say that NPR was the world leader in personalized audio news streaming, Mm. that would be a true statement. Mm. Probably not for much longer as others start to introduce that, but we have a large audience and we have a large megaphone and there is a lot of other choice for content in the way that we produce We have great relationships with all of those partners, but this is where we're kind of struggling with do we just partner on those things when we are sort of seeding the audience in some ways, the relationship, the analytics, sort of knowing who's listening to what, how do we make it better? If someone else is atomizing or packaging, are we seeding a programmed experience that is the bread and butter of public radio? So these are the questions that we're wrestling with now, and it's about owning an audience or renting an audience. Our business is not just on advertising against the content. We're not just a content producer. Gimlet is a content producer and Wondery is a content producer and all the other podcast networks. Mm -hmm. But we're a distributor too. We distribute radio program. We distribute a ton of it. There are, I think, 60,000 news sources that Google News pulls from in text. How many audio sources can it pull from? 
And the answer is not at 60,000. So like NPR, the BBC, maybe ESPN for sports, maybe Bloomberg for business. And so how should we be thinking about that? Right. It's not quite as, I don't want to say commoditized, but it's pretty specialized. And is there a service to be made atomizing audio that doesn't include NPR's audio? So an interesting thing is what analogy do you have from other industries that you can look at and you think about technology broadly, everyone competes and cooperates at the same time, it seems like. Right. Whether it's you know Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, they're hardcore competitors, but they do all sorts of things mm-hmm. together. And those things change all the time. Right. And maybe that's part of what's going on now. I'm sure that's part of your thinking. It's complicated. We learned about all of those things in business school, value nets and complementers, and they're all really important at the beginning. But at this point, we've got a track record where we can look back and see what was the impact of those kinds of partnerships for newspapers or in the music industry. And I can only talk about my strategy and how we try and apply it here, which is what's changing for the audience is the modality that they're consuming the content. In music, you still have music producers, but the business model changed when the user had a different way to interact with the music not by album and not on vinyl, but by the song Mm -hmm. and a playlist in a way that could make it much easier and portable and customizable. And so is that going to happen in news? And if so, can we deliver a modality that's better than maybe a Google or a Spotify? And in some ways, that modality is the programmed experience. But right now it's just on the radio. So how do we bring that new modality with some of the new technology platforms? That's the way that we're thinking about it. Partnership has to have a purpose. You know, I've been in this business for a long time. I worked at the AP before NPR, and I did a lot of consulting in between. There is a huge draw to partner with Google and to partner with Facebook and to partner with Twitter. But at the end of the day, what problem are you solving with that partnership? Where is the gap in your value chain or the weakness that you're going to address with that partnership? And that sometimes is a hard thing for people to answer. And so we try and lay out the story here, which is these are our threats and what are the root causes of them? Oftentimes, the partnerships that people want us to get into are not addressing those root causes. They're worsening some of those things. The implication of that, and all that makes perfect sense, the implication of that is that you got to go toe-to-toe with Google. Yes and no. You either are a friend or a foe in this, and we're both at the same time, as we were saying. I don't mean just Google, but all all of them. There are a lot of executions that these really large and scary companies have done that have not succeeded. And just, I've been here for three and a half years. I point to a few regularly when we talk about some of these partners and what they want us to do. So some of them will come to us and say, give us a feed of all of your content and we will atomize it and personalize it for our listeners based on what we know about them. We want to create an NPR One-like experience, some of them will say. We have NPR One and we create this personalized audio news stream and we produce all of the content. It's a programmed experience that blends local and national journalism in it. And why would we seed that programmed experience to someone else? And one of the answers kind of easy, which is there isn't a business model that they've offered us. So it's kind of easy for us to make a valued decision. But also that is the essence of what we do. It's our core business. And I often think about all of the companies that have disappeared in the last 25 years as a result of disintermediation and disruption and digital technologies. 
and try and make sure we steer clear of some of those known pitfalls. But we do know that some partnerships, if we went into them, would dilute our value right away. I'm talking to Michael Letsky about NPR and the strategy of the organization and the modern world of podcasts and radio and the incredibly complex ecosystem that keeps changing and has now brought some gigantic players toe-to-toe with uh, NPR, including Amazon and Google and the rest. I know. The days are long gone when radio was this sleepy little medium that nobody paid attention to. Yeah. Who would have guessed that some of the most (laughs) exciting things happening in media really are coming from radio. It's fantastic, really. If you love radio, you love this era. I mean, it must be so exciting to be part of this. Yeah, there are folks here who are are sort of saying it's the second golden age. Is that what people say? Well, we have to say something about it because there's a tremendous (laughs) amount of increased activity. (laughs) It's true. And our talent, both sort of engineering and on-air talent, everybody wants them. They're in hot demand. You know, the economics of podcasting now are different than they were just a few years ago. One of the biggest challenges we have is that there's a ton of venture capital money coming into podcasting Mm -hmm. and not a lot of rational valuations in that space. And so what VCs are throwing money at is really inflating the valuation of things. makes it hard for a nonprofit like NPR to compete in terms of talent and retaining engineers. So fortunately, We give people a lot of room to grow, a lot of great training, a lot of freedom. They know that what they're doing here is a little bigger than just the product. And so for the most part, people stay here and are happy to be a part of what we're trying to do and the mission that we have. But that doesn't, nevertheless, I mean, the challenges are still pretty great. Right, right. That really speaks to your... You know, the work you did is three and a half years at your NPR. Just about. And you're changing how people think and forcing them in some ways. And we know in our walk, we saw the tiny desk, which is fantastic. We were mega fans. And uh, the person that created it yeah, is Bob just a genius at what he does. Yeah. And that's one of probably, you know, 25 different, that's right. I guess, called products or verticals or businesses. But, you know, another word for that is silo. Yeah. And now you're bringing in, you know, you have a dashboard you've created. You're bringing in some modern business practice at a pretty sophisticated <laughs> level. You're an expert. McKinsey, you're not a walk to talk on this. That's got to be a cultural shock for some of the folks here. I don't even know that they're modern business practices, <laughs> that's, right? That's now. even worse. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we joke about that sometimes when we convene groups to be innovative. And some of the things that we end up with are maybe were innovative 10 years ago for other companies. I mean, corporate dashboards, some productivity metrics are things that my team have, have been working on here. I know a, a true sort of mid-year green light budgeting process for things that come up mid-year we need to fund some more robust projections for revenue so that we, you know, oftentimes the last few years we've under projected our revenue and we've missed out on opportunities to do some long-term investments. We have many projects going on in the company, but we don't have um, sort of a true enterprise PMO. So you think about a company with scarce resources, a lot of competitive threats, having a process by which you can green light new projects and then evaluate whether they're on target, hitting their milestones, mm-hmm. prioritizing them based on their strategic or financial value. Those are things that, you know, just commercial enterprises, um, you know, for-profit businesses, those are tools that they have to manage these things. When I worked at McKinsey, um, we had a government client where we brought a lot of these same principles to that government client. And it was new for them. And it was brand new for them. And there was resistance, but I think it just sort of over time demonstrated the value, highlighted the cost of their pain. It's sort of like um, when I've said this to some colleagues here to try and anecdotalize, 
case, we can't keep complaining about our headache and not take any aspirin. And part of the aspirin is, let's have a good view of the current state here so we can identify these gaps in the root causes so we can start to solve them. We've been able to bring these things to the table here. The hard part has been institutionalizing Mm -hmm. them and expanding them. So, for example, a robust PNO would have a lot of teeth and a seat at the executive table, resources, the ability to train folks. We sort of bought into the principles of it, but haven't fully bought into the entirety of it. explain for the wider audience Ah, exactly what that is. PMO is a project management office. It's essentially a centralized place where somebody is watching all of the projects going on to make sure that they're getting done. Particularly in a business around podcasting, it's incredibly competitive. It's incredibly fast moving. If we have a strategically important project to enhance our metadata or enhance our latency, the distribution of the podcasts that has a financial and strategic value, we need to make sure that gets done on time. Without a project management office and some discipline or structure in managing projects, it's hard to do that. So it's hard to get those things done on time. Oftentimes, companies that don't have project management offices aren't even aware of where a project is in its status. Mm. People aren't fully aware of who has the decision authority. It's like running blind, really. NPR did one thing one way for a very long time and did it really successfully. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, when podcasts came along, NPR didn't have to do things terribly different, right? We made great audio. All we did instead of broadcasting it was putting it in a package in an RSS feed, not to simplify or diminish the work that's done to be a podcast publisher, but it wasn't materially different. But we do a lot of things now that are materially different than creating content. What would be one good example of that for well, there's get their hands around. yeah, creating a personalized audio flow that is NPR one, creating channels of audio. So, for example, a lifestyle channel of audio, a politics channel of audio, a family-friendly channel. So you could go home one day and the kids are doing their homework around the dinner table and people are preparing dinner and you could ask Alexa to play NPR or you can ask Alexa to play the family channel for NPR. And so the stories about Larry Nasser or the stories about attacks or assaults in Afghanistan might not be included in that fee. So programming things like that Mm -hmm. are what we're really driving towards, creating more sort of personalized and customizable products. We love how we program things. People love it, but some people want to hear a business feed after a while. They might just want to hear NPR music, NPR culture. And so metadata and tagging around all of that audio, creating some AI and some personalization around it so that it can serve that bespoke request. Yeah. That's where the future is right. going. So if somebody wants to read one section of the newspaper, that's right. they're going to keep getting that. And they can get the whole thing if they want, but they want to go way, way deeper than one section could give you on culture or on music or on whatever. And you have that content. So take business, for example. Nobody would say that NPR is a business news company, Mm -hmm. but we have the top two business podcasts. Do you really? We do. We have How I Built This and Planet Money. And we have a third one that's probably in the top 10 called The Indicator. It's a short-form business podcast. And within the news magazines, we have business stories. We have a business story of the day that is sort of a flash briefing, if you want, on Alexa. And we have business coverage generally. 
there are people who don't think NPR is a sports brand, but there's a people love when NPR covers sports, Mm -hmm. not because we're ESPN, but because our sensibility and our storytelling is different. How do we marry the demand and the love that the brand has with all of the assets? That requires a lot of new project work, a lot of new Mm -hmm. development, and prioritizing what those things should be is part of what I try and give to NPR, which is if we have all of these ideas, Mm. and we have no shortage of ideas because we have brilliant people here, how do we prioritize those? Because we don't have unlimited resources and unlimited people. And so without, and I'll hold up in my hand, without a strategy or an end game, it's hard to know what things you should be doing when you don't have a direction to get there. Which is not complex ideas, as you say. No. But it's a different way of thinking. But you also said something about, you know, in sports or in business or two areas that NPR is generally not as well known, but you have great assets aside from news or culture. It made me think that, and gets back to the conversation about Google and uh, and others. So there's open source and closed source in software. And so if it's all NPR, it's kind of a closed source Mm -hmm. model, which I don't think that's won the battle when it comes to a different industry, which is, you know, technology, where software is available anywhere that it's available. And most, I mean, I'm sure there's probably an exception, but most of the players in software have gone to a more open source approach. Are you arguing or saying that your assets, and assets meaning shows and content, are so strong today, certainly relative to the Googles of the world, that you can survive and thrive with a closed source model, at least for a period of time. I think yes, for a period of time, only because there's a finite amount of listening that one would do in a day to news or spoken word. What is that? Well, we know what our average listening time is for NPR One. We know what our average listening time is on the radio. Mm. We know what those average listening sessions are. So we have a sense of what that is. I would counter to you the New York Times. So the New York Times is a brand with a number of sub-brands. They produce more than any one person could consume it. That's for sure. In a period. And you're just talking about the Sunday newspaper, of course. Probably, (laughs) yeah. I mean, the crossword puzzle alone and the comics and the opinions and just any section. Now, everyone doesn't read the entire paper, but the point is, is that we have a lot of potential that is unrealized. In some cases, we don't necessarily believe in the potential that we have. Mm -hmm. A lot of what my team does is bring back to our stakeholders here how in demand we are, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the book, film, or TV IP space or the distribution space. We've understood that people would pay us in the very high eight figures for content that right now we only make available to our stations. And so we are really, really valuable, right? 40 million people a week, a brand that everyone loves. Are we doing everything we can Mm -hmm. to corral that energy into financial sustainability for NPR? And the answer is we are doing better, but we have a lot more to do. Yeah. Back to this, two quick things. This notion of doing one thing one way for 45, 50 years means that our structure is set up to do that one thing one way. So structurally, the business development executive does not necessarily always have peerage with the head of programming or the head of news or other departments. And that's because that's not how the structure was set up. And I don't expect that that would change.
change overnight. And so when we're trying to influence and persuade and get people to see things differently, analysis alone won't do it. There's a whole different narrative or story that has to go along with it that involves sort of public service or mission or audience growth. And so the mechanism by which one persuades at a nonprofit or a news company is different than it is in the corporate environment. How do you change an organization or group or an individual? And over the years, I've come to this kind of ultra simple model. There are four Mm -hmm. things you have to do. Mm -hmm. And the first is awareness. They have to know that there's something here, that there's issue. And it's not always so easy, even though it might be obvious to some people. It's not always obvious to everybody else. And they may say, yeah, that's an issue, but that's your issue. We're the journalists. So you have Mm -hmm. that problem. And then it relates very closely to willingness. At the end of the day, are people willing to make no experiment, try something a little bit different, do it a little bit Mm -hmm. different. And then the third step is you got to have a better idea. turns out that everyone thinks that's the toughest thing to do. It's not the toughest thing to do. I mean, there are exceptions, but coming up with a better way to do something, that's kind of what your job is. You got a lot of ideas on how to do that. And then executing on it is a lot of, you know, a lot of blocking and tackling, a lot of work, but you can do that. It turns out that the things that are most difficult when it comes to change are the psychological ones, at least my experience. And that's around awareness and willingness. And it sounds like that's the battle you've been dealing with. All of that is true. I also think that it's sort of where do you start? Mm-hmm. Where are people starting from? Mm-hmm. So I was a journalist for a long time and sort of joked about it. I'm now sitting in a role that I used to disdain mm-hmm. when I was a journalist. They are creators and there's not a lot of external outside inside looking. Mm-hmm. When you're in that space, you're on the inside mm-hmm. and you're looking out. And what I have my team sort of focusing on is let's bring the outside in and recognize that we can still do what we do. The what doesn't have to change, but the how does. And one of the things I've learned is that that's the thing that's different now. That wasn't for the last 40, 50 years. What's the thing that's different? The how. The what is great audio. Right. Great storytelling. You're still doing that. Driveway do moments. That. That's what it's all about. Right. But the how the is... How is... The how is changing. So I'll give you a bit of an example. So in my mind, there's a value chain for media companies. It's really simply. We make content. We package that content. We distribute that content. We promote that content. And we monetize that content. Mm-hmm. And NPR is best in class at making content. But the modalities have changed. It's not just a radio anymore. It's podcast apps, it's streaming services, it's smart speakers. Mm. And so that begets different ways to package the audio, package the content, Mm -hmm. different ways to distribute it, different ways to promote it, and different ways to monetize it. And that is incredibly complex because only a couple of years ago, NPR and its stations never had to worry about access to the audience. Radios were everywhere. Mm. Everybody had one. Every radio had an FM frequency. Every FM frequency had a left-hand side of the dial and on every left-hand side of the dial was an NPR station. We didn't have to worry about anything. Everybody's home. Yeah. And all we had to do was create a programmed experience with great content. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about that with websites and podcasts and now third-party audio aggregators, that location, like a car or a home, that device, that platform, we don't own or worry-free about those anymore. We're never going to have the device, the computer, the smartphone, 
the smart speaker. We're never going to have the operating system for those things. Mm -hmm. We're never going to have sort of the platform running on those operating Mm -hmm. systems. And so all we can hope to do is get an app on there where we control the content. And what we were talking about earlier about partnering and we're great content producers, why don't we partner on the distribution? At that point, we see the distribution. Mm -hmm. We're just content producers. Mm -hmm. But right now, today, we're more than content producers. Mm -hmm. We are distributors and we're programmers and we're all of these things. And on the radio, we didn't have to worry about access to the audiences. And so we're trying to find our space in this new ecosystem where we know we're never going to own or have to have a worry-free time with the device. So I look at what Disney is doing as a proxy, and I look at what the New York Times is doing as a proxy, and I look a little bit at what iHeart is doing as a proxy. So Disney pulls all its content off Netflix. Mm -hmm. It acquires Fox. It acquires BAM Tech, which was the MLB Advanced Media. That is the digital backbone platform for content distribution, including live streaming and localization. Mm -hmm. They have Marvel, they have Star Wars, and they have all their own programming. And what they realized is we're not getting full value Mm -hmm. from renting audiences through Netflix and other platforms. We can monetize it better and we can learn about that audience and we can cross promote and we can develop new programming and it makes us better. Mm -hmm. We're in the same position. I could argue that we might even have a better value proposition because while Disney is awesome, there are lots of other great content producers in that medium of filmmaking and television. Like I said, in audio, there's NPR, there's maybe the BBC, there's maybe a few others. You know, I could argue that we have a pretty strong defensible core in audio, news, storytelling, spoken word. And so do we seed some of that it's in a, the future? It's a very interesting argument you're, you're making. I could be totally wrong. Which, I will know in a few well, years. <laughs> it's really generating a lot of questions and thoughts in my head. One is, and I don't want you to answer this, but you have now just said that the NPR content in your world is probably or maybe more powerful than the Disney content in their world. I don't think, frankly, a lot of people are going to agree. No, I I didn't mean that. I meant our value proposition in our space is as strong as their value proposition in their space. There's no other Star Wars. That's why they bought it. Correct. There's no other princess movies. Many people have tried to make them. No one's been able to make them. That's not to diminish what you have. It just struck me as like a very powerful statement. But it's a motivational. It's an inspirational. It's an aspirational. Correct. But you know what really triggered universities, how universities work? If you think that NPR is still in the early stages, universities are in prehistoric stages. I've always said, you know, what do I do? What do colleagues like me do? What do we do? We're in the business, I've always said, of creation and dissemination of knowledge. That's the type of content. And you just said, well, there's five stages to this value chain. And I only think about two. I've never had to think about promotion very much. I may have a podcast, but it's not really. It's creating knowledge and disseminating in a variety of ways. You talked about distribution. Well, yeah, you come to university, we're distributing it to you. Now there's online courses as well. And what was the other one? Distribution, promotion, and packaging, and packaging, packaging. which we barely think about right. at all. It seems to me that the types of work you're doing would be unbelievably valuable in a university. And let's just talk about business school, which is a lot narrower. The only business school that's doing anything like this is Harvard Business School. Sure. And even that is limited to traditional right. verticals, such as case 
writing and they have other things that they're doing and they're very, very successful with it. But the amount of content that's being created in a business school or a university is enormous and it's just not being monetized at the at a, right. at a baby. It's really an embarrassment now that you say it the way you say it. And I'm in a business school. We should know something about this. Well, we don't know anything about this. A couple of things. One is you make me want to clarify the Disney statement, but I do believe that in our space, we have a very dominant value proposition and we could be taking better advantage of the strength of the assets mm-hmm. that we have mm-hmm. and don't have to rely entirely on third-party distributors who aren't even in the business yet. Like there isn't even a sort of Netflix for personalized news streaming right now. Second thing is I think NPR was kind of in the space that education and higher education was, mm-hmm. which is we make content, we distribute the content, yeah. we share it. And the reason why I tried to introduce this structure here is because NPR to me is two businesses. It is the nonprofit business that is the sort of essence and the heart of public radio across the country in Mm -hmm. partnership with the member stations. Mm -hmm. And it is a media company competing with the New York Times and CNN. And that's where the challenge of change comes because the mindset in this building and in this ecosystem is almost entirely around supporting public radio Mm -hmm. in the traditional ways. And my group Mm -hmm. and the way we define things sort of with the outside view, supporting public radio is best served, we argue, and these are healthy arguments to have mm-hmm. in the building with your colleagues. We provocatively say is by being really strong, a really strong competitor yep. in the media landscape outside the building. What does that mean? That means a great product that consumers use that takes advantage of the new modalities that people expect content to come in. They can have a channel of content that they want. They can listen on demand the way they want. They can listen to a flow of things or a station stream mm-hmm. or live coverage if it's an impeachment hearing mm-hmm. in this one experience. NPR has a tremendously strong brand affection, brand love. It's one of the highest among all of the media companies. We are not terribly strong in familiarity relative to other media mm-hmm. companies, ironically. Even though we are listening to in every red state. How do, you, how do you measure that if you're having 40 million listeners or downloads or whatever the metric was? That's Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, this is just consistent year-over-year data that shows, I won't give out the exact numbers, but we are at the top in favorability yeah. and in the middle in familiarity. Mm-hmm. And we have been voted the most loved news brand mm-hmm. and the most trusted mm-hmm. news brand, but half the folks that we ask are not familiar with our brand. Isn't that interesting? It is. In a bad way. <laughs> Terrible. But, but it's really interesting. Right. But on the other hand, it's like, wow, at least those who know us love us. Yes. And so is there anything we can do to affect that? And what that? an incredible opportunity. I'm, I'm, totally, that's right? exactly what you see. But as a nonprofit that focuses on great storytelling and local journalism, as you can imagine, we are not blessed with a large marketing budget to yeah. move the needle there. And so a lot of that mm-hmm. I challenge my team to work on, which is how do we leverage these third-party distribution agreements, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the things that that we partner with, with Alexa or Spotify or Google to grow that familiarity. So trying to negotiate to be the default news provider. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can make that happen. Sometimes we can't. Making sure that the NPR logo is on the box if there's a certain device that's being sold or we come preloaded or there's a button. We have NPR in places that you would never imagine. Different apps, GPS apps, televisions. There's a lot of listening going on on television because that's where the best speakers in the house are now. It's on the television. So there's a television channel that is NPR. 
So For on example, your smart TV, on, on smart or TV you can do we have relationships oh, on of course, TVs? Yeah, I, I, on, and, on Roku or maybe yeah. Apple TV, too. You yep. see an extra. And on cable providers. And you can just listen. You have to watch. That's right. And in the morning, some people flip their TV on and yeah, listen to NPR. Makes sense. So I think we are the default on a certain smart refrigerator, which is always a fun thing to talk about. <laughs> so if you want, if you ask your smart refrigerator for the news, you'll get it from NPR. I don't know that that's something that we negotiated specifically, but this is the wild west now of distribution. This is not, you know, your, it's the golden age of radio in terms of content, but it's a wild goose chase in terms of distribution. So, you know, people have been listening, people listening to this podcast, we've been talking for, you know, 45, 50 minutes already, and really talking about the strategy and the thinking and the ecosystem, the way the world's changing, really interesting. And I bet people would be surprised to hear how you started your career. Mm-hmm. You mentioned briefly you were a journalist, you were an award-winning photojournalist, and you're now on the other side, truly the other side. Could you say a little bit about the early days? Like what got you into photo, into photography, let's call it first, in the first place? Yeah, I think like a lot of my photojournalism colleagues, we weren't necessarily the best students. (laughs) And so photography was a great way to get over social anxieties, to sort of meet people, go to events, you know, work with others on publications and things like that. It's addictive, sometimes in healthy ways and sometimes not. You you were at the Washington Post for a long time. I I started at the Baltimore Sun. You know, a lot of folks are familiar with David Simon's work, Homicide, The Corner, The Wire. I worked with David Simon and I worked at the Washington Post with a number of Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. So I am blessed with A, working at great brands. So the opportunity to come to NPR fit right in with my values. I love working for great brands. I love walking in the door and feeling the legacy and the heritage and the spirit of the place and carrying that with me as I try and mm-hmm. do my job there. But it enriched me as a person. And I was 25 years old when I was sent to Sarajevo in late 93 and early 94 as a 25-year-old running around a city under siege, covered the second intifada in the Middle East, 2002, after 9-11 here in Washington at the Pentagon. I covered, I wasn't a war photographer continually, but I covered my share of conflict and I covered my share of urban issues, drugs, you know, other urban issues, crime, assisted suicide, medical marijuana, immigration, impeachments, contested presidential elections, all along the way, getting experiences that are second to none. But at some point after 9-11, sort of hit the point of exhaustion and looking around at that profession, realized that I sort of was at the sort of the pinnacle of a photojournalist's career. I could try and find a job in management, but that would be much less impact. There wasn't much more you could do as a photojournalist. So I took an inventory of those skill sets and I realized that business was not that distant from photojournalism in terms of you needed to be accountable. You needed to build trust and get access to information and people. You know, as a photographer, your picture in the Washington Post is the story of how successful you were at your job every given day. Absolutely. I mean, you've got the AP and the New York Times and every other sort of publisher at these big events that I covered, everybody knows who got the best picture Hmm. the next day. Everybody knows if you knew where to be when. Working in the Middle East at that time, where that was the front page of every newspaper for a long period, 
in April and May of 2002. And the expectation when you work at the Washington Post is you do not get beat. You really have to be on top of your game. Getting people to trust you to do these in-depth exposés, all of that seemed like important skills for business leaders. Now, I soon realized that regressions and <laughs> CAPM models also were um, less surprising, <laughs> perhaps, but it turns out to be kind of important. It got very important. <laughs> and so that just took, a you know, my learning curve was spent. I spent more time on those sorts of things. Sure. But I found that those skill sets have been really important, mm -hmm. whether I was at McKinsey or, you know, at a nonprofit media company or, you know, ran my own consulting business for a while. The thing that's been really, I guess, sort of hard and beneficial is the notion of a generalist. When I was in school, James Citrin, the legendary sort of executive search, yep. came and said in 2005 that specialists are, in a sense, a dime a dozen. The generalists are going to rule the world. Hmm. I thought, well, thank God, because I'm not a specialist yeah, in anything. Somebody finally said it. Yeah. And that's been true in terms of performance, mm -hmm. how you put things together. I think when you were talking to one of your other guests, Jim Beattie, said, look, there's a plethora of data, but the real gift is how you use that data. And I feel the same way about generalists. It isn't always the case that other executives see that. They want that specialist. But I found that in this role and a number of others, the ability to put these things together, like understanding that media value chain, so you can break down your business into its component pieces and really tap into what the root cause of over or under performances is incredibly valuable. And I don't know how much of that draws from the photojournalism, but I do know that when I was at the Washington Post, there were five Pulitzer Prize winners on that staff. Mm. There was an incredible amount of talent to learn from. There was also an incredible amount of you know, ego and culture to yep. balance. Yep. And those are lessons that I didn't first experience in my business career. You know, you have to stand in front of uh, Len Downey or Ben Bradley and defend your work. That's a tough spot to be in, but it's a good experience to have when you're young. Yeah, that's really interesting. This, the skill set, some of those skill sets, maybe many. Being a photojournalist actually transferred into kind of what you do today, which a lot of people wouldn't really necessarily think about, right? And the fact that you have the street cred as a, mm -hmm. as a real journalist mm -hmm has got to have helped you at AP, but especially here with this senior position. They know you Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. They say, what have you done for me lately? You're, you're, yeah. you're not a photographer anymore, but you did it. You did it for 12 years. Yeah. I mean, what I've learned is that it is a very different language. It is very difficult to get people in one profession to understand the vocabulary or the mindset of another profession. But if I said, you know, yeah, back in 2002, there was a day in April where I spent the morning in the hospital with Jewish victims of a suicide bomber and talked to those families and photographed those burned, wounded, and maimed. And in the late afternoon, I was in the Gaza Strip attending a, a funeral of a Palestinian shot by Israeli soldiers throwing stones. Mm. Now, that's just one day, and that's sort of my journalistic cred, but I'm not here for You're not a journalist that. today, but an organization that's where journalism is first in many ways, content creation, it has to give you credibility. I kind of thought so too, but I respect the fact that journalists, so this is really interesting, mm -hmm. and I don't know if there are parallels in other industries, I haven't thought about it, but journalism has been under threat for so long, and journalists, including myself 20 years ago, didn't think that the business folks were looking out for this thing I love. There were very few examples of right moves back in the late 90s and early aughts 
when it came to newspapers and journalism and being ready for the digital future. There weren't a lot of right moves. And so given all the layoffs and given the sort of shrinkage of quality journalism and the investment in investigative stuff and Mm -hmm. shrinking investments in local journalism, I can empathize with journalists' view that they need to find revenue and they need to have great ideas because others aren't. And I've heard that from some folks here and I try to tell them, do great journalism, we're taking care of the business. And over the last few years, my team has contributed very significantly to the margin of this company. Now, we don't have a budget, we don't have resources, and we don't have decision authority over any of the products. But just by what we have Mm -hmm. been able to control better Mm -hmm. negotiations, more and broader distribution deals, new business lines with IP optioning and others, we have certainly contributed to what is, geez, I think 40 or $50 million of revenue growth in the last four years. But the journalists, they don't quite see or feel that. They always feel under threat. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the credibility that I have as a journalist kind of matters that much because I'm a suit now. Yeah, but it's a tough (laughs) argument for someone to say, well, you just don't understand what I do because you do understand that. Yes. uh, Even though you're obviously on the other side. We're just about out of time and I'd like to ask a couple of final questions that I've asked just about all of my guests on the SIDCast. One is about advice and another one is more personal question about your partner and how you met him or her. Yeah. And so the advice question is, and because you've changed your career so in such an interesting way, it's particularly poignant. If you can go back in time to the 21-year-old Michael and kind of sit next to him as he's doing whatever he's doing at the age of 21 and you wanted to give him one bit of advice and said, you know, you really want to think about this. This is something that's going to make a difference for you. What would that advice be? You're going to hate this answer. And I think your listeners will too. (laughs) I'm an only child of two handicapped parents. So my mom had polio and my dad had a palsy and they grew up in New York and met at a social club for handicapped people. Some people might get offended at me referring to them as handicapped but those are the terms that they used in the 70s. My dad had an interaction with a young doctor who said, Leonard, you're not handicapped, you're differently abled. And at the time he was probably 70 or 75. And he said, oh, when I was a kid, I was a cripple. Mm -hmm. And so my parents were pretty awesome. They defied what everyone told them their lives should be. They got married, they had a kid, they bought a house, they had careers, they got educated. And people always expected that they would live there. Their parents, their whole lives. And so they sort of did their own thing. Mm -hmm. And at a very early age, as part of that family, I had a lot of responsibility and a lot of self-ownership of what I needed. I had to rely on myself in some ways. So I was raised to really be thoughtful Mm -hmm. and deliberate and think ahead and do a a lot of pre-planning. If you're an adult and you're disabled or handicapped, you really have to get your logistics right, Mm -hmm. whether it's vacation or work or how you plan anything. And I don't know if that consciously happened, but I've always been a pre-mortem kind of guy. Post-mortems were a little late for me. And so what is going to go wrong Mm -hmm. if I do this? And maybe the advice that I would have given myself would have been to articulate that better, Mm -hmm. to remind myself to do it, which is whatever it is you think you want to do, what could go wrong? I left my undergraduate program with one semester left. I was a photojournalist and I was looking at graduating with job prospects that were going to pay a pittance. Not even enough to cover my student loans. And I left school to get internships because I thought if I had a resume full of great internships, I'd get a better paying job. And everyone in my family and elsewhere said, you're never going to go back. 
you're never going to finish. It's doomed. Your life is over. And my father didn't say that at all. But everyone else did. And so I went out and I got internships and won mm -hmm. awards. And I was able to get a great job right out of school. Everyone else who graduated when they were supposed to didn't. But I pre-mortem the heck out of that. I knew exactly what it was I was going to do and what I would do if it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't do option theory because I didn't know what that meant <laughs> at the time. But effectively, I did some of the, mm -hmm. I did the same thing. And and as you get older, those decisions gave me a chance to bring serendipity into my career. So in a sense, it was very planned, but it also gave me a lot of flexibility to take whatever option came up. And so that's what I would say about that. It's been a great career. I feel like my business strength is transformations. You talked about change. Yep. I did a lot of that work at McKinsey and I did a lot of that work when I had my own consulting firm and I do it here. My personal story is one of transformation too. And sort of realize that not everybody is up for a transformation. Mm -hmm. And there are frameworks for it, business frameworks, but that doesn't really work all the time. It's like relating to a spouse or having a conversation with someone. It may not matter at all what you say or how you say it. Sometimes it just matters when you say it. And some people just are not ready for mm -hmm. transformation or change. Some companies, they really need to feel it before they're ready. And at that point, it's too late. And I'm not suggesting NPR is there, but my consulting time, there were companies that were really on the verge who had chances to transform before they were at that point. Mm -hmm. And once they figured it out, it was a little too late. It's a little too late. Wow. So did your parents see your subsequent successes? My father. Your father did. did. Yeah. My mother died when I was very young. My father didn't see me graduate from Tuck, but he saw me get in, which was a thrill. And then um, he saw his grandchildren, wow. which were born at Tuck Babies. In uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. In Hanover, New yeah, Hampshire. Yeah, interesting. I did a podcast. It aired in um, December with Jerry Zachs, who yeah. is the Broadway director. And his parents were survivors of the Holocaust. Right. And I asked them whether they saw his subsequent success, Tony Award winners and all the rest. And, and he said his mother did his father maybe not as much yeah. and it meant so much oh my gosh to for my parents to get into a school such an esteemed school that generation that was everything as was getting a job at the washington exactly. post and when you can make your parents proud is there anything it's, is there anything better than it's that it's a pretty good thing i tell my kids that all the time <laughs> how's that working out <laughs> it's, it's, we'll get there yeah we'll yeah. totally get there. how old are your kids 14 year old twins Wow, that's true. They've 14. been up to Dartmouth and they are they talk about it all the time. Are you training them to see if they want to apply when the time is Absolutely. right? Absolutely. I've got them. They, they know how to say New Hampshire, so they're going to get their Funny. accents right. So last question is yeah. about how you met your spouse. My wife was a photographer at the Washington oh. Post when I met her. Same business. Same business. My wife is a native of Peru. She moved to the States when she was in her mid to late 20s. Mm -hmm. She'd already learned English. She learned a little more. And then she came and left and went back to Central America to become a photographer. She picked up photography in the States and she covered a lot of the guerrilla wars and mm -hmm. insurgencies in Central America and worked in Honduras and Nicaragua and El Salvador. And where did you meet her actually? I met her in Washington when I started to work at the Post. We lived about a quarter mile from each other without really knowing it. And she worked for somebody else? She worked for the Washington Post, oh, the Post. and I started working at the Washington Post. And I can only speak for me. I just thought that she was awesome and one of the easiest people to get along with. And she loved my dad. And that was pretty much all I needed. 
from when you met? <laughs> How long did it take to get married? Uh, I think a year and a half. Very cool. Yeah, one of the challenges was I proposed. She ran away and ran in a circle <laughs> and said, "I, you know. Is that a good no, sign? No, <laughs> no, I can't believe it. It was, it was joy, but I had to chase her around on one knee through Central Park, that's a, that's which, was, which was, yeah. was fun. The place we wanted to get married at was called and said that they only had availability at this one time. And my wife was in the Amazon on assignment for three weeks. And so I had to plan the entire wedding. That's a first without a her while she was in the Amazon. A statement assignment. of uh, incredible confidence and calmness on the yes. part of your wedding. I won't say that I tried on the wedding dresses, but I all but tried on the wedding that's dresses. A great, that's a great um, story. Yeah. Michael Lutsky, thanks for being on the SIDCAST. Really enjoyed the conversation. It was my pleasure. I hope that it's an enjoyable uh, listen for Absolutely. folks. Thanks for listening to the SIDCAST. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.